All right. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Skull Session Salute, where we pay tribute to the late, great Bob Nelbandian. Uh, obviously, a, a guy I know you knew for decades uh, before Metal Blade Records was even, I believe, conceived uh, back to the early fanzine days. Uh, I know where both you and Bob were leading the charge in, in Southern California in terms of promoting and helping to push uh, metal where the genre wound up becoming and was in its infancy back then. But before we get into your history with Bob, Brian, you know, last year, I know 2022, it marked uh, Metal Blade's 40th anniversary. So, I mean, 40 years since the release of that iconic and probably most important, I would say, uh, compilation in heavy metal history, the first Metal Massacre, which, of course, featured Hit the Lights, the first track ever recorded by Metallica. So, Brian, 40 years, I'm sure you have to pinch yourself when you think about the label now being active for that long. I mean, did you ever envision Metal Blade as a, a career or was it simply just a hobby when you started this? this no, I never would have dreamed any of this stuff would have happened. I, I was just a fan that, uh, you know, I had a fanzine. I worked at a record store. I was obsessed with the new wave of British heavy metal. Mm -hmm. and kind of the compilation album just came about because I was frustrated by seeing bands that I really liked before that never went anywhere in LA. A, a big example is this band called Exciter, not the Canadian mm -hmm. one, but the <laughs> LA one that featured George Lynch. Mm -hmm. And they were like my favorite heavy metal band when I was in high school, thought they were amazing, thought they were going to be the next Van Halen and just nothing ever happened. They never went anywhere. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, George joined Doc and there's a couple other bands that I saw early on in LA in those days that nothing happened with them. And here, here we go where this, there's a metal scene in LA, which I had no idea. One of the guitar player from bitch actually used to come into the record store all the time, mentioned me that there was a scene there. So I was like, really? I had no idea. And I went, the first show I saw were, was a Motley Crue and rat at the, at the Troubadour on a Wednesday night for a dollar. Wow. Like, oh, wow. There are metal bands in LA. So <laughs> I, just, I just try to help do something. I never thought it was a career. I, I thought I was going to be a journalist probably more than anything else. And then it just kind of evolved into this label and it's still hanging around 40 years later. Yeah. So it's amazing, man. Well, like you said, I mean, prior to obviously doing Metal Blade, like we were saying, you know, the, the new heavy metal review, that was the fanzine. I know that you were running out of uh, Los Angeles. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of metal fans, I think, and, and some of the younger generations, they don't really understand really how metal was such a, you know, organic and fan-driven thing that was really championed by fanzines like you were doing. Um, obviously, you know, you were in the LA area, and of course, um, another champion of metal from Southern California was, of course, Bob Nalbandi, and he was running the headbanger out of Orange County. You know, and guys like yourselves, I mean, you were so really instrumental in getting those classic New Wave of British heavy metal bands, you know, notoriety here in the States. You know, we recently talked to John Gallagher from Raven who mentioned, you know, to us that it was guys like yourself and Bob who really were on the front lines for metal in those days. And they wouldn't have really uh, gotten to the point they had gotten if it wasn't for guys like you. So, I mean, I guess... Just uh, talk, I guess, a little bit about the days when you were helping to promote really the Ravens and the Iron Maidens and Diamond Heads here in the States. But how did you really become first aware of and heard of those bands, considering that you know, they weren't really being pushed or, or promoted much at all here in the States? Well, when I was, when I was younger, uh, when I was in high school, I, uh, I was a bootlegger. And I would basically okay. record all the shows and I'd trade them all around the world. Because, uh, you know, I trade them for, you know, other people's tapes. So anyway, I was trading with a guy in Sweden that had a bunch of really good stuff. And he sent me uh, ACDC live show in 1978. And on the very end of it, he said, hey, there's this new band, Iron Maiden, who just put out an EP called The Soundhouse Tapes. I put it on the end of this cassette for you. It's free to check it out. You might like it. Of course, they listened to it. 
and thought, oh my gosh, what, what is this? This is just mm-hmm. incredible. And that led me down the path of, of the new wave of British heavy metal, which was really, you know, at the time I was into a lot of, I was into metal, obviously, but I was also, there's a big new wave scene in LA with like Oingo Boingo and the Go-Go. Well, the Go-Go's were kind of punk rock at that time, but a mm-hmm. bunch of bands like that. And then there's the punk rock scene with, you know, all the LA bands and the dead Kennedys would come down all the time. So I, and I also was, you know, love metal. So I was into all these different styles of music. Uh, and then when I heard the new aviation metal and got into that, that was the, I threw everything else away and said, <laughs> okay, this is, this is, this is amazing. And I just love the undergroundness of it, the do it yourself versions of all that stuff. So I went about collecting all those records, you know, reading about it in sounds magazine, which lucky enough, we had a couple record stores in LA that would carry it. So I, I had some familiarity and, you know, I had some pen pals from the back of the magazines and just kind of started, started out. And then there was nothing in the U.S. There was no coverage, no nothing. So I started basically the first ever U.S. heavy metal fanzine just to try to get, again, just try as a fan, just, just to get the word out somehow. And, and sure enough, found out that there were all these people all around the world that were into the same stuff, which kind of blew me away because you know, I was here in L.A. with like my one friend and you're the only two. <laughs> And then a third when we met Lars. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, and then you just you start this community all around the world with people that love this music. Yeah, and I was going to say, yeah, because, you know, uh, when I, just from when I'm, you know, my you know, looking at things and from, from the, you know, the history of all this and what I can conclude, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like you kind of just alluded to, I mean, the fact that it really was a regional thing at that time with metal, right? I mean, obviously... Um, you know, obviously not just domestically here too, as well. You had, you know, a lot of, like I said, overseas, Sweden, Germany, UK, you name it. Uh, but most major cities, I know, uh, you know, here at least in the states, you know, they had their metal scenes. Obviously, LA, New York, and San Francisco. Now, of course, had a fan- fanzine. You had Ron Quintana doing with Metal Mania, uh, you know, in, in San Francisco. Um, so each region really had its own sort of representation, I think, through the fanzines, which eventually led to, you know, obviously these scenes eventually they kind of like, you know, merged. I mean, obviously Metallica signs, you know, obviously with a, a label in the East coast, Raven signs with the same label, Megaforce, obviously, uh, you know, it's simultaneously you started obviously metal blade around the same time around the early eighties to 82, I believe, um, which initially I know you were focusing on the local bands, as you mentioned, but of course, then by the time you had your third metal metal massacre that came out, you had bands that weren't from the region, like Snow White on there and Virgin Steel and so forth. So, I mean, how vital were, in your opinion, I mean, I guess the zines that you and Bob and everyone else had started in terms of really building up, as you just mentioned, the community where it became this global you know, phenom not too long after the fanzines and Metal Blade really were launched. I mean, could the scene, in your opinion, have flourished, I would say, without having those zines in those early days? Or do you think it would have just kind of fell flat without them? It's hard. It's hard to say, of course, but clearly those things were a huge help because, you know, remember, this is 1981, 82. There's way before the Internet or anything like that. So it was really difficult for people to find out information. And even then, you know, you'd you'd send a a pen pal letter to somebody to wait weeks to get it back. And same thing with the tapes. You'd wait to get tapes Mm -hmm. back. And then when I did the fanzine. I just thought it was going to be kind of a local thing, but then I found out there are record stores in other parts of the country, and you know, I knew them through the distributor that I was buying all the imports from at the, at the store as well. So all of a sudden, you start finding there's a community out there 
of, of other people that are into this stuff. And then there's more fanzines, you know, Bob's and yeah, Ron Quintana's and KJ Doubt. And, you know, all these guys started their fanzines over here, which was very similar to what had happened in Europe. So you had like Ardshock and some of these other zines that were happening in Europe covering what was going on there. Cause then it went from not just the new wave of British heavy metal, but then there's Merciful Fate and then there's Accept and then, you know, all these other bands and other parts of Europe that were coming through too. So it was pretty amazing. But I think that that kind of grassroots followings with the fanzines and even, you know, the, the independent labels and the bands that in the new wave of British heavy metal that put stuff out themselves, all of that, all that kind of people working together kind of created this scene and, and had it start to grow. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing about Metal Blade is that, I mean, uh, I don't know if a lot of people, I mean, I know a lot of people do know, but uh, I think there's a significant amount of people that don't really understand that it was really the first, uh, you know, independent metal record label. I mean, you know, obviously Mike Varney, I know, started shrapnel up in the Bay Area. So you guys are both sort of came out around the same time, I believe. But his his was obviously more focused on the guitarist and the virtuosity Whereas, you know, Metal Blade was more abandoned group oriented. I mean, so at the time that you were starting Metal Blade, I mean, to do something like that, obviously, during those days took, I mean, such dedication and drive. I mean, was when you started, was there a sort of need that you felt to maybe because you had all these other fanzines? Was it sort of like, OK, you wanted to sort of maybe separate yourself a little bit and do something a little different to make the new heavy metal review sort of maybe stand out a little more. So, no. you know, no, or you just, I was, did, I was yeah. just merely a, merely a fan that wanted to share my love of this music to as many people as possible. So okay. I, I don't, in fact, I don't think there was really any competition necessarily, but especially between the fanzines, we're all just mm. huge fans that for whatever reason wanted to help out. And I couldn't play an instrument, so I couldn't be in a band. So I thought, well, mm. I guess I'll do all the other stuff and, you know, work at a record store and do a fanzine and, you know, I started booking shows in L.A. and helping with the local radio station on their one hour of metal every week. And, you know, the, all these sort of things just trying to help promote, you know, the music because I loved it. and I wanted other people to hear what I thought was really great. And luckily, other people seem to like it as well. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sp and speaking just real quick, you know, um, talking about Bob, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of people I've, I've talked to when doing this. Um, these these uh, episodes, um, a lot of them, a bunch of them have said that they first met him usually, you know, at a show, say, like at the Country Club in Reseda, which obviously I know was a big club back then that put on a lot of middle shows. Um, but also there's a lot of people that were saying, you know what, I can't really remember the first time I met him. I just know he was always around and, you know, and they just obviously knew him just because he was just a big part of the scene. What was, if you can remember, I know it's been 40, you know, plus years, but what was, when was the first time you, if you can remember, ran into Bob or started connecting to him? Was it through the fanzines originally, through the headbanger? I, you know, I, I knew you were going to ask that. I was trying to, I ran my brain. I, my recollection is, and, you know, like I said, it's been a long time. I think I first met Bob at an Arbor Saint show because, okay. you know, he was tight with those guys and he was Orange County. And, you know, I was, I was far away from that. I had gone to shows in Orange County, but, not a whole lot. So there's a whole different scene happening out there. So I'm pretty sure the first time I met him was with, our, with when Armored Saint, probably the first time I saw Armored Saint. And then, you know, we started talking. And he, he, again, here's another guy that, you know, loved all the same music that, that you loved, you know, all the European bands and the New York Chevy Metal. It, it was always, you know, whenever you met those people, especially way back then, mm -hmm. you're in, instantly connected. You're instantly friends because you're into the same music and there weren't a whole lot of people that are into it. And, you know, Bob was just as into it as I was 
was or anybody else was. So it's always, always fun to find those, uh, you know, kindred spirits, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that Bob, you know, obviously was known for as both a youngster really until the day he, he left us is that, you know, and it doesn't matter who you talk to, but they always say, I mean, he was always about the music and really helping bands and, and bringing obviously people together. And that was never really about any money or notoriety. No one ever, you know, heard him talking about, you know, making any money or if I'm doing anything he did, you know. And, and so as a guy, as yourself, who's known him for, like I said, four decades plus, I mean, I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, especially as two, two of you guys were the biggest fanzines, obviously, in, in Southern California. I mean, did you ever sense that was any sort of, like, like you kind of just said, really, there was no competition or anything, but was he always just about the music and joining forces, with, you know, with everyone to try to promote and help out these yeah, bands? I, yeah. Yeah. Bob was one of the most passionate people about heavy metal that I ever met. Like he was all about the music. His whole life was about how can I promote the music? What can I do to help it? You know, what outlets can I do? And he's done, you know, so many different things, but he's always been about the music. And, you know, every time I'd see him, we talk about, you know, whatever the new releases were, or, you know, what are you listening to? Or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and it, it never, never changed the entire, you know, 40 some odd years I have known him. He, he literally didn't change as a person. He was the same guy that he was, you know, when he was 20 something in his you know forties and mm -hmm. still loved the music and still was passionate about it. And, you know, every time I saw him, he's you know, wearing a band t-shirt and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So he was a real genuine guy, number one. And number two, uh, obviously the, a huge metal fan and was in it for all the right reasons. And, a you know, an OG guy from day one, pretty much. So I had a mad amount of respect for Bob because, you know, there's not you see people over the years and they kind of come and go. And especially if they're not, you know, in a band or whatever. And he was always mm -hmm. a, a consistent presence on the la metal scene and just the metal scene in general mm -hmm. yeah no and like i said we with so many people say the same thing that he just never changed he was just always the same guy they knew when they first met him like i said four years ago um so you know um just going back to metal blade now i mean obviously you know metal blade it, it became the home of obviously so many iconic metal bands in the 80s we can go on forever about the bands that have been on the label over the years but i'm gonna fast forward just a little bit to the end of the 80s that decade and bring up obviously I know you, you've got probably get asked this a lot. One of the more interesting uh, th uh, signings, I would say, in the label's history, obviously, is when you sign the Google Dolls um, in the early part of their career at the end of the 80s there. In 89, I, know, I think I believe you released the second LP there, Jed, they had. And they were obviously such a different band, more of a, a power pop sort of punk band with some thrash elements, uh, obviously, before the, much, you know, way before they became a, a radio you know, pop rock band in the mid to late 90s. But I mean, I mean, I know, of course, Metal Blade, no stranger when it comes to signing some unconventional bands that you typically might not see on a released on a metal label. But the, that one really obviously stands out more than the others. And it wasn't like you just put out one record. I mean, you put out about, I think, four records, I believe, uh, by them. Well, yeah, correct? five, I believe. Actually. Oh, five. OK, so five. So, I mean, you, obviously you saw something with them. And that was, of course, though, right around the time when metal was really on the the downward spiral in terms of popularity with rock and music fans as grunge really started to obviously come in and, and take over. So what, I just always wanted to know, what was it that made you sign them? I mean, did any of it have to do with the fact that you saw how metal was maybe about to go through probably a, a painful period and thus maybe you wanted to kind of dip your toes into that alternative grungy waters? I mean, talk a little bit about that signing. 
Well, kind of what happened is we had, we had a lot of connections in Buffalo. Uh, Mike Faley, who's worked with the company forever and still does, was from Buffalo. So he had okay. connections there. That's how he found found Cannibal Corpse. And then the Google Dolls were kind mm-hmm. of the same thing, where he and uh, our A&R guy, William Howell, at the time, famous DJ Will, um, you know, heard their first record and thought it was really good. And we, so we had a, a punk label called Death Records. And the reason that that came about was DRI opened for Slayer. I thought they're amazing. At the same time, DJ Will again uh, had heard about corrosion conformity. So we had these records. And I, I grew up being a big punk rock guy. You know, I loved all the LA scene and punk rock. Mm-hmm. I loved obviously the Dead Kennedys were my favorite punk rock band of all time. But I was into the, I love, I liked that stuff. And so I went to both DRI and COC and said, hey, I'd love to work with you guys. And they both said, well, we can't. I said, well, why not? Because you have a metal label. And at that mm-hmm. point, punk and metal were, were, did, were not did not Oil play and water. Well. I know. Yeah. Did not play well together. Yeah. I said, well, what about if I just started another label and called it something else? Would that be OK? And they said, sure. So we started Death Records and that okay. became uh, DRI, COC, uh, Ugly Americans, Dr. No. The infamous mentors, mm. uh, cryptic slaughter, and the Goo Goo Dolls. So it's a pretty wide, interesting array of, of bands. But the Goo Goo Dolls in the very early days were very punk rock. Uh, mm. You know, uh, <clears throat> Johnny only sang about half of the songs, and so it was the other stuff was was total punk rock stuff. So I, I love them. I thought they were really great, and you know, just. People ask me all the time about that. I said, well, to give you the credibility, they did open for Cannibal Corpse a couple times in Buffalo, and they did okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just thought they were, they, they were really great songs. They had a really good edge to them. Never in a million years would we think that they would become, you know, uh, I mean, that that song name was just kind of an afterthought on, on that record, and that was the one that sure. made them huge. But their early stuff was really, you know, it was really fun pop punk rock stuff and i just thought they were great they were amazing live like they were so much fun live and had this great energy and so we we loved them all label everybody loved them and we loved working with them and uh and then yeah of course they just kind of went went crazy but recently i was watching um sunday night football and the bills were playing so you know they always play buffalo music coming in and out of the 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 bumps as they call them Mm -hmm. they played a google song and i was kind of like that I didn't rewind it. I go, yeah, that's, I'm trying to figure out what it was because I didn't listen to Google Dolls, but it was, I think it's from Superstar Car Wash. And what I didn't realize was how similar, especially those last couple of records before they made it big, sound exactly like the Foo Fighters. Like I listened to that oh, record, really? and, oh my gosh, because I know Dave Grohl is a big fan of, of ours and, and you know, mm. all that stuff. So I was like, I wonder if he borrowed a little bit from mm. the early Google Dolls stuff. But yeah, yeah they were fun and you know, kind of – it just worked out perfect because we ended up, you know, having this relationship with Warner Brothers and they really were kind of getting too big for us. And we, you know, we can't, you know, we couldn't sustain that. So they moved over to Warner Brothers and then the rest is history. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and of course, you know, you know, following that there in the 90s, I mean, you know, I, I would actually should say, I mean, really, I, I should ask you how challenging, I guess, then was it for like, you know, Metal Blade to survive that decade, you know, a decade that really wasn't, like I said, about metal at all. I mean, did you, did you ever think about changing the, the the strategy or closing anything down i mean what, what, what was talk a little bit about that in the 90s because that was obviously probably the most difficult time i would imagine for the label 
Yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was difficult, but I'll say a few things about it. Um, number one, we never were going to change what we do. Like okay. you know, the early T-shirts said heavy metal will never die, and I believed it was never going to die, mm-hmm. even though a lot of people at that time thought it was. But you know, we 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 moved around. You know, we had a relationship with Warner Brothers. We did a lot of reissue stuff. You know, we reissued Thin Lizzy and Deep Purple and Alice Cooper and Stars and all these different records, which did really well for us. We also did marketing. Like I loved the whole you know grunge or whatever you want to call it movement i love alice in mm. chains i was around them from the early days i saw mother love bone with andrew wood who were phenomenal you know big fans of you know alice in chains all those bands so we did a lot of marketing for the majors because the major labels were signing all these bands but they didn't know what to do with them on the underground level so we did marketing for uh for alice in chains for Soundgarden, for nirvana for you know all, all pretty much all those bands and we would okay. do all the you know fanzines and radio stuff for the majors and we got paid to do that so that helped Kind of pay the bills too. In fact, the Goo Goo Dolls went massive, didn't hurt either. But people forget too, though, the underground, even though in the mainstream metal was was dead and non-existent, and the bummer too was all those grunge bands who loved heavy metal and all came and grew up on that stuff. They weren't allowed to say they were into it because it was such a bad word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The hair metal thing kind of ruined it for that and the major labels. But, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of great music. I mean, we had Guar, we had Cannibal Corpse, we had Six Feet Under. We had King Diamond mm-hmm. and Merciful Fate all through the 90s who made a lot of really great records and were selling a ton of records for you know underground bands. I mean, okay. you know, both Cannibal Corpse and Six Feet Under were in the you know couple hundred thousand sales mm-hmm. range, which was amazing for, for that time. So we we didn't it was a struggle for sure. Um, but you know, we we did all right. We never, you know, we never hopped on any of these other movements. I never hopped on the new metal thing and even though we did mm-hmm. the behind the scenes stuff with all the seattle and the grunge stuff we never really uh, i'm wearing a smashing pumpkin shirt today as a matter of fact oh, there you um, are, yeah. we also worked this on um but you know we never did that we just kind of i, I kind of just had a feeling because people ask me all the time why don't you do this why don't you do that i, go, I just I, i'm not gonna believe that this thing is ever gonna die it's just it's we're going through a rough patch but there's still a lot of really great music and i tell people too now like there's a lot of great records that came out in the nineties. Like all that merciful fate oh, yeah. stuff that we did. Like, I think those are really, really good records and people kind of like, eh, it's the nineties, but I encourage people to go back and listen to stuff from the nineties. Cause there's a lot of really great metal albums that came out and that's, you know, of course spawned the whole, you know, death metal was really big around that time as mm-hmm. well. And so it was, it was not easy for sure. Um, it was difficult, but it, I don't, I don't recall that being, I don't recall any time where we're like, oh my gosh, we're going to go out of business because of this. Okay. Now, following the 90s, obviously, and probably, I mean, I would say probably maybe a, a bigger, ch- obviously, a bigger change occurred. It had nothing to do with really musical taste, but it had to do, obviously, with the whole industry itself. Uh, you know, when technology took over and traditional means and methods of obviously selling music and had completely flipped on its head. So, I mean, at that point, you know, but that point too, though, I know metal was climbing back in. You know, it was really back on top again in the early 2000s. It started to really take hold again. But now you had a challenge, obviously, that would assume was probably uh, obviously a lot different in terms of, you know, uh, the traditional means of, of selling these musical products was not the same. And, and people weren't, you know, buying music like they once were, obviously. And then once you had all the bit torrents and all those coming out, all the the downloading sites, I mean, I'm just curious, really, I guess, how, how Metal Blade was able to really, you guys were able to really, you know, adjust because that's, I think, a lot of the, the problems a lot of labels had at that time, too, was they didn't know really what to do and how to adjust to all these changes. What was it? Well, how were you guys able to really keep that going during that part of, you know, of that period of the, of the label's career? 
Well, a, a few things. Uh, number one, as opposed to resisting change and, re and going against all of that stuff, we kind of embraced it and said, well, what, mm -hmm. how can we use this to our benefit? I mean, there's not, you're not, you can't stop it. Like it's just, it is what it is. And I understand why people would, you know, want to do the file sharing thing, because at that point, you know, you buy a record, which was 20 some odd dollars, and there might be one good song on it. The rest of it was terrible. Mm -hmm. um, so what so what we did is we, we embraced that. How can we use this to promote our bands? And the other thing that we try to do, especially with the artists, I mean, as a record label, you know, I mean, you know, we're fairly cool, I hope. Uh, but we would talk to the fans a lot. But we encourage the artists to talk to the fans, say, like, look, I, I understand why you're doing this. We get it, understand it. But just so you know that if you get all your music for free, that means that we don't make any money. And if we can't make any money, then we can't continue to be a band and we can't make any more music for you. So mm -hmm. it kind of became this crazy badge of honor for a lot of metal fans to like say, I, I bought the record, you know, I bought the CD, I bought the record mm -hmm. to support the bands. And, and I, I mean, that was, you know, there's a couple of times where it was, you know, it wasn't really great, but once that kind of turned the corner a little bit, that really helped. But what really has helped and it started with that is everybody had access to music. Anybody could listen to music for free. Mm -hmm. So people discovered, you know, bands like Amon Marth or, you know, Cannibal, whoever it was, because they could listen to it anytime they wanted to for free and then they'd get into it. And then if they got into the band and the record was good, then they would buy the music. And the other thing it did is it forced bands to make good albums. You couldn't get away with two good songs and the rest of the record being terrible because everybody's going to listen to it. And there's no incentive if people can get it for free. I was like, well, I get it for free. It's not a very good record. I'm not going to buy it. But if I, I get it for free and it's actually really good, okay, I want to support the artist. And we were really lucky in the metal community that so many of the fans did that. And that really helped us through that, that period of time uh, to where we, we figured the same thing. Eventually it's going to change. Uh, it can't, that sort of model can't sustain itself because it was run by, you know, pirates basically. Yeah, a lot exactly. of them. Mm -hmm. Um, so it became a mess and then the streaming services came about and then, you know, here we are where you've gone full circle where, you know, for a long time, the music business was making no money where now, especially the major labels, unfortunately, you're making tons of money, but it, yeah. it all, it all kind of comes around. Like I said, we, I, I, the one time I resisted change was when vinyl left and CDs came in and I was like, no, vinyl's never going to go away. I grew up with it. I love it. And then within one week, all the record stores in the country decided they're not going to have vinyl anymore. And they shipped all the records back. And that's the one time that almost bankrupted the company where we almost went out of business because I made a dumb mistake by not listening to whatever he kept telling me for months, like stop making vinyl and start making more CDs. And I didn't listen to that. So ever since then, whatever the technology is, whatever it is, I'm going to embrace that and embrace the change as opposed to resisting it because that's the only way you can really kind of kind of get through it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, and obviously that that's what's one of the key reasons what's kept, you know, um, you know, Metal Blade take, you know, keeping going here after 40 years is because, like you said, embracing those changes. Now, I mean, have obviously changes, you know, since then, I mean, obviously, you know, there's always going to be changes, obviously, but nowadays it's more streaming services, you know, where people, I mean, we've also just got a much more, I would say, of a saturated market with, with metal as well, or just music in general. I mean, have you have you pretty much been able to sort of keep the consistent philosophy that you've had since this all started, you know, in the, two, the early 2000s to today? Or have you had to make some some other adjustments, you know, obviously 
over the last, say, 10 years or so to keep things going well? Yeah, I mean, you always have to make adjustments. I think, you know, the mm -hmm. one thing that's really interesting in the metal community is that physical product is still very popular. We still, obviously, vinyl is huge. We, mm -hmm. we can't we can't make enough vinyl to keep mm -hmm. everybody happy. Um, but, you know, we also still make CDs and CDs still sell really well. And the one thing that we've learned over the last few years is, 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 is we learned the marketplace and who, you know, how many things to manufacture of both CDs and vinyl so that we keep everybody happy because the streaming part is pretty easy. You just put the, the stuff up there and it does its thing and you promote the artists. Um, but the other part is a little, a, a little trickier, but I think we've gotten around and, you know, all the labels do the same thing. You kind of know your, your marketplace pretty well. So you have to adjust those sort of things. You know, we've gone through, cutting down what we do on CDs and making sure we don't have, you know, 50,000 CDs lying around that we mm, can't solve. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we've done a fairly good job of adapting to, to that sort of stuff. And, you know, I mean, the, the internet has become so important because it gives us as a label, a direct line to all of the fans. So everybody knows when a record's coming out or everybody knows when a single's coming out. So that those sort of things have been really helpful. And we've kind of, you know, you hit, you, you swing where before we had a, whole, a lot of people that were involved in manufacturing and now we don't have as many people involved with manufacturing, but now we have a whole gigantic social media team. So you kind of adapt with the times and, and figure out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense and how to move forward. And I'm very lucky to have an unbelievable staff who, do great work and they are a lot of them know are and are much smarter than me when it comes to some of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, so it, it all works. That's fantastic. Man. That's great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny when I, when I, when I think of metal blade and, and you know, the headbanger and, you know, your old Z and the, the new heavy metal review and just really how you guys built up that scene in the early eighties. It's, as I was saying, it's all fan. It was all fan driven yeah, you guys were like, you know, young guys leading the charge of that scene in the style of music. You know, I just look at today when I think of how it is today. I mean, obviously, it, it is such a different world in so many ways, you know, so there's not one thing you can pinpoint to. But it just seems like a lot of the younger kids, I mean, they're not they're not as involved with leading the charge for sort of that next generation of metal fans. It seems to me, you know, that, I mean, it's really a lot of the older guys who are continuing to, to push it. And that's one of the things, obviously with metal blade too, is, you know, over the years, you never stopped sort of leading the charge into metal. You didn't sit there and rest on your laurels and go, okay, we're going to just going to put out, you know, traditional or classic metal bands and focus on that. You've always sort of stayed ahead of the forefront and, and tried to really bring up a lot of the new, you know, generation of metal bands and, and so forth. So, I mean, in your opinion, I mean, how much, does i mean i guess maybe that void of lack of sort of i, I don't like lack for a better word but a lack of leadership among the younger generation of metal fans i mean how much does that really contribute do you think for to metal maybe also not really having the same lord to young music fans as it once did i mean i was just in vegas you know a couple of months ago and you know I'm, I'm in you know some of the the casinos and the hotels and I mean, gone are the other cover bands playing music in there. It's just all, you know, EDM and, and hip-hop DJs on, on the stage. I mean, you know, so, I mean, for, for you, obviously, what do you see in terms of maybe some of the younger generation that's just really maybe – do you see this – let me ask you this way. Do you see the same passion as, as you guys had as young, and maybe they just don't have – you know, it's just harder, I guess, to, to do things now in terms of, you know, it's it's obviously, you know, the kids aren't going to shows and buying shirts and, and see, you know, CDs or tapes or whatever it is like they once did. I mean, what's your take on all that? 
Well, I probably think the opposite, actually. I, I've been more impressed okay. with how many new bands there are of kids who are like in their early 20s that are coming out, out now. I mean, there's like so many of them. And we've got a whole bunch of really cool uh, metal labels that are kind of coming up and coming, like, you know, Close Casket, for example. A lot of, you know, young young guys who are in their 20s, they're mm -hmm. doing this. We've hired pretty recently a few guys in their 20s to do IT stuff and you know, they're big fans. I'm seeing a lot more younger fans. I think it's a little bit different because it, the availability of everything is easier and it, it's hard. There's not like one area you can go to to say like, this is going to lead the charge. Like there's no MTV, there's no Headbangers mm. Ball, there's no uh, mm. MySpace. So there's no, you know, fan, all these things that we kind of would go to in the beginning. So it's a little bit trickier, but I, I'm pretty I'm pretty happy about where, where things are going. And I'd say, you know, well, you know, we have a lot of people who've been with Metal Blade for, forever. We, you know, we got a lot of people in their, you know, early 30s and 20s now who are just as passionate about the music as, as we were. And the same thing with journalists and stuff. So I think it's 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 in a pretty good place. It's certainly not mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, and I kind of like that because it's yeah. still at a level. When you look at concert sales, I believe metal, rock and metal is either one or two in ticket sales every year. Spotify numbers rock and metal is is one or two or maybe third overall sales you know it's country and pop and rock and metal so the numbers are really good and a lot of that are, are younger kids and even when you go see a band like you know iron maiden or even a monomarth or ghost or whatever it is you know, there's a there's a half of the people in there are, are younger so i think the next generation is going to be okay and i think you'll see leaders coming up and I, you're the whole other thing is people ask me like, well, there's no, there's no headliners anymore. It's all, well, it's like, well, because, you know, Metallica and Iron Maiden and, you know, all these bands are still at a high level, but you've got Lamb of God and, and Mastodon and Gojira and Amata Marth and Ghost. We're all starting to, to headline and sell out arenas. So mm -hmm. it's just a natural progression of these bands kind of coming up and, and continue to come up. So I, I think we're, we're in a, a pretty good place. It's just old guys like me are still around. So, you mm -hmm. know, we're not leaving and making a lot of room for the younger kids. But I, I, I'm pretty positive that we'll be in, in good shape because there's, gosh, I mean, there's got to be, I don't know, 25 or 30 like un, underground metal labels that are doing really cool things in different genres you know a lot of stuff i haven't even heard of and i talked to you know friends who are younger they're like oh yeah we love you know whatever this label is and so i think i think we're in a good spot i think and naturally you know not all of those people are going to continue doing it but i think there's going to be a, a few that are going to continue to do this and kind of you know help replace if some of these labels go away as as they either a get older or b unfortunately get bought by major labels Sure. Well, and I think you brought up a great point, and I agree with you 100 percent with metal not being you know mainstream, and, and I like that too. I just feel like it's always it's always been a genre that really it was it was born out of just that almost the antithesis of mainstream, and you know even though it's it's obviously you know it helped the genre in terms of popularity you know over the years. I, I agree where I think it's it's good where it is right now, underground where a lot of, you know, that's sort of where I think it, I think that's where you get to, you get to find, you know, musically, just in terms of just the whole culture of the scene. I just think that that's where it's really going to uh, burgeon, take hold when it's in that space where I always feel like it belongs. Just, just a personal opinion, but. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, 
I totally agree, but I also, but we also saw what happened in the late '80s and early '90s, where it got so big and so commercial and so mm. mainstream that it killed it. Had to yeah. go back and reinvent itself. So you know, I'm always wary of it getting too big. Like I don't, I don't mind that the Grammys don't care. You know, oh, I don't yeah. mind that you know all these TV shows don't care. Um, that's fine with me because that's not the audience that we want. It's just. Mm. You know, when when you know, I mean Metallica's playing stadiums, you know all these bands are headlining festivals in Europe that have you know sell out, uh, you know whatever seventy five to one hundred fifty thousand tickets without even knowing who's playing. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. So um, yeah. you know, and all the you know Danny Wimmer festivals here, and you know yeah. when you look at it from the from especially from the live music point of view, it, it's bigger than almost every other genre at this point. Just we just don't get the the love from the mainstream, which like I said, I'm fine with. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Well, just, you know, going back to, you know, um, you know, with Bob, I mean, having been around him and people who were involved with the scene back then, guys also like John Stradansky, et cetera. I mean, you know, when I listened to, to the old, uh, you know, and you had been on some of those, well, the Shockwave Skull Sessions episodes, the original ones Bob did back in the uh, mid 2000s. When I'm listening to you guys talk about the old days, it just, you know, you, you just, you, you sense this, this this glory you know glorification you guys all feel that being behind the you know behind the scene players of the time you know obviously the bands you know and that they have the glory of course they love that but also for you guys because of the amount of time and energy and everything you guys put into you know growing the scene and, and music along with those musicians and i think what's even cooler is that you know the bands and musicians you know, they always really give you guys credit to the fact that, you know, uh, you guys were almost like extended members, you know, of the bands, which I always thought is really cool because of, you know, you guys were always there and from day one, you're still there, obviously now. Um, and you don't really usually see that really often in music in general, where everyone wants to just take the credit for everything themselves and not give it out. So, I mean, when you're sort of, you know, reliving sort of those glory days, I mean, I guess if you want to call it that, I mean, I, I guess it's got to make you you know what you've done now for the last 40 plus years that much more satisfying knowing that you know you really are respected and you're you're celebrated alongside those band members and you're not just sort of these guys who you know no one knows about you guys are well known to metal fans like myself as being really such a part of the history of these bands i mean i, I would say that's gotta be satisfying much more than anything i would say especially at this point of your life you know as you know you're getting older, you see, you know, it's been around for 40 years. Now you see where it's gone. You still see these bands like Metallica and, and all these other metal bands that you've worked with selling out, you know, stadium, I mean, arenas left and right still. I mean, how great does that really feel to to know that you are, you know, right there alongside all those big name musicians and bands, and not just sort of this guy behind the scenes that no one knows about, you know? Yeah. Uh, look, it's, it's, it's nice. Obviously it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't do any of this for the money or, or any other reason other than I just love the music and it's still that way today, but you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's nice to see that, that the work that you put in pays off. And the thing for me, especially with the, the label number one, and also, you know, bands that I'm just friends with that aren't even on the label. It's just nice to see them have success and, you know, have them be able to do this for a living and, you know, have, you know, a family, a house, a car, and they're doing it all on music. And that's kind of what ultimately everybody would want to do is you want, you know, as a working either band member or somebody behind the scenes at a label or a magazine or whatever you're at, booking agent manager, is for you to be able to, to carve out a living doing this. And I think that's another reason why, you know, metal's done so well is like, there's a lot of really great people that are involved in this, that even behind the scenes 
that you know some people know about and some people don't know about that that do phenomenal work um mm -hmm. and it's great that the bands acknowledge that too you know it's it's fun i just I had, was at a big uh, event in uh hollywood during grammy week for a tj martell event and it was like in you know, all the who's who's of rock and metal you know behind the scenes stuff were there but there's a mm -hmm. like robert trujillo was there which is great and okay. tobias from ghost was there which was great i had a, a nice conversation with him and uh, yeah it's 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 just it's a great group of people to be around with and work with and it's nice if they say nice things about you every once in a while i guess sure absolutely well, just a couple last questions about Metal Blade here, Brian. You know what you got going on now. Obviously, um, you guys have been really spreading your wings in terms of really getting involved with some non-music-related ventures and latest Metal Blade uh, uh, entities that have come out here. You've got uh, some rum and vodka out now. Um, during the pandemic, I know there were some there were some bands that were doing stuff with whiskey and stuff, but it looks like that's an area. It seems like it's an area a lot of metal, you know, and extreme music fans have a really interest in. And so you've obviously now gone into, you know, putting out some liquor as a 40th anniversary celebration type of thing is uh, talk a little bit about that. Is, is that something that you're, you're going to continue to do? Or is that really just a uh, something that was really done for the 40th anniversary of the label? Well, you know, the branding stuff, we never really got involved with his label because we felt like let's have the band. The band should be able to do it. You know, that's their thing more than us. But mm -hmm. after a while, we, you know, all, a lot of the same people kept coming to us and say, hey, you know, would you want to do a beer or a vodka or something? always like well you know we didn't really have the infrastructure so after a while it's like well we've built a brand you know i think it yeah. kind of started with with uh with my first book when when i did the the you know history of heavy metal i was mm -hmm. history of metal blade records it's kind of the first time we did something out, outside the box necessarily and it did surprisingly well so we kind of thought about it and then a, a good friend of mine worked on a tv show called dr 90210 and he did all the branding for them and he was like looking for a gig and i said well we've been thinking about doing branding so once we hired him that kind of put things on a bit of a fast track because we had somebody to deal with it because before we didn't really do it and then we just ran into all, all these random people and we've done you know candles beer yeah vodka rum uh we're doing shoes this year oh, wow just a whole a whole bunch of of, of fun stuff in case we just did skateboards um cool. so it's kind of fun to do it and have fun with it and same thing there's so many people out there that are now involved in these different companies that are big metal fans and they're all like for example the guy we're doing the rum with it's the key key west's first legal rum distillery uh, oh, wow. Key West, Florida, and I'm, I love Key West and we're doing a couple things with some people down there and he's just a massive metalhead and has this rum company and said let's do a rum I'm like all right so let, let's do a rum and uh so we did that and and the vodka thing's kind of the bigger the biggest of all of them because now we're transitioning into where we might have some more some might become more of a national thing with the bottles okay. in the stores and stuff so we'll see I'm you know it's kind of fun to do it's interesting to do things outside of the metal world, but then you start finding out that things aren't so different from what we do to what they do and other mm -hmm. things. So it's, it's fun and interesting. You know, we'll see how it all goes. I mean, it could all fall apart tomorrow, but hopefully yeah. not. Well, no, I mean, and there seems because there's so many breweries out there that have, you know, they make these specialty beers for a lot of bands specifically. You know, I'm, I'm here in the Bay Area in Oakland and, and they've got this Ghost Town Brewing here, which is a big metal, you know, sort of a death metal brewery. So it's, it's, it's definitely, I think, an area that people uh, definitely enjoy seeing branding, you know, their, their you know, vices with obviously their f favorite music and so forth. So I think it's a great thing. And as you just, you know, talked about, you mentioned your first book. Well, I, I noticed you've also got another book, I believe, coming out um, for the sake of heaviness, the history of Middle Blade Records. That was obviously the book you put out in 2017. But 
I recently became aware that you will be releasing a follow-up titled Swinging the Blade, More Stories from Metal Blade Records. Uh, I believe I saw it's supposed to come out this spring. Um, is that still on track? And what could people, I guess, expect in that book that was a little different than the first one? Yeah, so um, by, by much to my surprise, uh, the reaction to the first book was overwhelmingly really positive, which was great. Mm. Uh, but I got a lot of questions like, you know, it should have been longer, but I didn't, you know, I, didn't, I don't want to bore people. Uh, mm. And also, like, we, we want more stories about some of the bands. We want us to hear about the obscure bands, all these sort of things. So oh, I started okay. talking to BMG, who published the first book, and some other people. And I said, should I do another one? And they said, absolutely. So unfortunately, the pandemic kind of, put everything behind because I finished the book two and a half years ago and then mm. the pandemic hit and then we had a paper shortage. Uh, so this should have been mm. out about, it's coming out in, in May is the official release date, but it should have been out last May. Um, but the paper shortage and everything else kind of messed it up, but it's up for presale on Amazon now. And, um, and I, I've had a, we've got a few, finally got a few copies. So I gave them to a few people, the staff and stuff. So, so far the reaction has been all right. So hopefully people enjoy it as well, but, uh, yeah, so that's uh, come out in May. Like I said, it's on Amazon now for pre-order. Great. Yeah, the first book was fantastic. I've got it, and I'm glad there is coming because there there was more things I was hoping to, or wanted to hear you about. So I'm great you're, you're putting that out. And, uh, yeah, so I encourage everyone out there to go ahead and check that out when it comes out. Um, Brian, anything else that we could look, for, look forward to uh, that Metal Blade's got lined up that we're not privy to yet? Huh, you know, there's just the all sorts of stuff, you know, all we've got a Cannibal Corpse record, record coming out that, you know, the last one did really well. It was really good. And those guys kept telling me this one's just as good, if not better, which you're like, really? That last one was really good. Mm. And, but they're like the harshest critics sometimes. And it is really, really good. So we're really excited for that. New Cannibal Decapitations coming out, you know, a whole bunch of bands putting stuff out. Um, I'm excited about a lot of newer bands we have too. One of one of which being this band called Two Hundred Stab Wounds that we signed. That kind of reminds me of another band. You know, younger kids. It kind of a remind me a combination of Cannibal Corpse meets Power Trip. Like oh, wow. somewhere nice. in between. They're really good. I saw them at Cycle Fest in Vegas, and I'm old. I've seen thousands and thousands of shows and thousands of bands, and I don't rarely get excited about things. But they blew me away uh, at that festival. I was like, oh my gosh! So. That's coming out a whole bunch of other really cool new bands and stuff. So just go to all the Metal Blade socials, metalblade.com, all that sort of stuff. And we'll, uh, you can get all the info there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, again, Brian, we appreciate you coming on to talk to us about Bob and the history of Metal Blade. And uh, obviously we look forward to Metal Blade to continue to carry the torch for a fifth decade. I mean, could you see just quickly, could you see Metal Blade being one of the, uh, a, a, a company that outlasts you? Let's put it that way. That I hope so. I mean, yeah. I, that's the plan at present. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we have a plan mm. for that. And yeah, I certainly hope so because, you know, number one, you know, we've built something really cool here and it would be nice if this thing, you know, continues on. That's why I've never sold it to a major because I just worry about, and I've seen what my other friends have done, you know, they sold their labels to the major and eventually it kind of goes away and they, the name mm. goes away and all that sort of stuff. And I don't want that to happen with Metal Blade. So, so hopefully again, knock on wood, that that's the plan. Uh, so we'll see how it goes awesome well, great well again brian thanks so much for coming i appreciate it man yeah no problem All and right. uh you know again what what a great guy bob was and what a lasting memory he's he's left a legacy of you know a, a guy that was an integral part of heavy metal worldwide so tribute to him yes thanks